uh, and a very warm welcome and a happy new year to all of you. Uh, it's good to see many of you again. It's especially good to see uh, Andrew back on his feet again. Uh, as you know, he's been ill, so it's good to have him with us. Uh, but before we start, um, just to highlight that uh, there's an outline in your sheet. Uh, you might especially want to look at that today because we'll be looking uh, through some Old Testament references and they're all recorded on your outline here. So you might want to use that for today. Uh, but before we begin, why don't we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the maker of heaven and the earth, that you are the King of kings. And we rejoice because you have sent your only Son, Jesus, to die on the cross. Uh, we, Lord, we just pray, Lord, as we come to your word again today, please help us to listen to it afresh. And more than that, please help us to trust in your word. And we know that your word is powerful. Uh, may it change our hearts today as we listen to you. We pray all this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Now, I think I must have been asked at least four or five times this week what my New Year's resolutions are. And to be honest, I don't usually make them. Now, I can tell you what the New Year's resolutions of others are, though. So, not surprisingly, uh, losing weight and exercising more healthily is on top of most people's list. Or not dying of scurvy by eating more healthily. That's probably another that's not mine, by the way. Um, and so is managing money better. But if a recent study is anything to go by, then we're in trouble. You see, in 2007, uh, Professor Richard Weisman, he tracked over 3,000 people who, had, uh, who were trying to keep their New Year's resolutions. And at the start of the start study, 52% of the participants said, yeah, we are confident we'll, we'll succeed in keeping our resolutions. One year later, how many do you think kept their resolutions? Oh, no, no, it's not that bad. Uh, it's about 12%. Only 12% achieve their goals. And that's probably why so many people don't even bother. You know, it's more stressful trying hard to uh, work hard at your resolutions. And it's probably better, it's probably easier not to make any at all. I mean, what's the point of pretending anyway if you know that you're not going to achieve it? The digits of the year might change, but actually it's back to the same old thing. So, why pretend? Why pretend? And that's also the question of an article that I just read uh, recently. Uh, in it, the writer, who is a Christian, uh, argues that what we actually need is a darker Christmas, and let me explain to you what she means by that. Uh, she means that the ritual of putting up nice decorations, of making gingerbread men, of watching children unwrap gifts, it's all really unnatural. So Christmas and New Year become just two weeks in which we distract ourselves from the reality of this cursed world. It's playing pretend. And she says, we need to stop because too many people cannot pretend. They cannot ignore how complicated, how overwhelming this life can be. Who feel that it's the same old thing. 
Now, whatever you think about what she says, she is surely right about one thing. Christians shouldn't pretend. And Christians don't need to pretend. Being a Christian is not about escaping or fantasizing. Christians breathe the same air as everyone else. Christians pay the same prices for sugar and petrol as everyone else. Christians feel the same pressures as everyone else. Christians cry over the same things as everyone else. Christians know the reality of this cursed world same as everyone else. So what then is the difference between Christians and everyone else? It is that with each breath we take, we can go to God. Now, as the writer says at the end of this article, the more we train our souls to see the darkness of this cursed world, the more we can behold the brightness of the light of the world. We can look at God. And that's what Simeon did in today's passage. That's what he praises God for. Uh, Let me just read to you again from verses 28 to 32. Simeon took Jesus up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Now regardless of whether or not you made any New Year's resolutions this year, resolve to know this. Christians can go to God. Why? Because our God is a faithful God. Our God is a faithful God. And I, this, this, I believe, is what Luke wants us to know from today's passage. So come back with me to chapter 2. And I want you to imagine that what we have here is a split screen, like you see on TV or in the movies. So on the left side of the screen, you get a peek into the plans of Mary and Joseph. So that's verses 22 to 24. And on the right side of the screen, you get introduced to a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. And that's verses 25 to 27. And we're going to spend some time in each half of the screen. And we're going to allow the faithfulness of God to shine through his word. So firstly, on the left side of the screen, we remember God's faithfulness. We remember God's faithfulness. Now, in traditional Chinese culture, a baby is presented to the wider family after the first month uh, by holding what is called a red egg and ginger party. Eggs are a symbol of life and fertility, and the color red is just simply good luck. And one reason for this presentation was that because in olden times, before the age of antibiotics and vitamins, uh, babies died easily. So if a baby makes it past his first month, that means that he or she will more or less live. And so the presentation marks the occasion. Well, in Jesus' time, every firstborn was required to be presented to the Lord. And that's verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, 
they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And that's why Mary and Joseph are in Jerusalem. This presentation isn't just about a ceremony. It's all about Israel's history. It's about the Exodus. It's about remembrance of God's faithfulness. Israel is to remember that their very identity is founded on redemption. The only reason they exist is because God delivered them out of slavery from Egypt. Their very life comes from death. See, God will take the life of every firstborn son in Egypt, but he graciously provides a lamb so that the firstborn of uh, his people will be spared. Because of God, they made it. They will live. And so, the eldest son is given over to God in in remembrance of this event. And that's what verse 23 means. Verse 23 is simply a summary of the regulations found in Exodus 13. Verse 23. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. The presentation marks this occasion. The parents are acknowledging that the child truly belongs to God. And furthermore, Mary herself needs to be purified. And that's the purification according to the law uh, referred to in verse 22. By giving birth to a son, she has become ceremonially unclean. So she can only take part in temple worship again after 40 days when she can undergo the purification rites and she can offer sacrifices. And all this is mentioned in Leviticus 12. And in Leviticus 12 verse 8, uh, we are told that if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. And this is the offering Mary offers in verse 24. And it's a reminder of the humble circumstances that she finds herself in. So as Mary stood on that day to present her firstborn to her Lord and to offer her sacrifices, she is remembering God's faithfulness to her people in saving them. God's faithfulness in providing for her sin. But even now, God is also showing his faithfulness here. Because Jesus, in being consecrated, is also fulfilling the law's requirements. Jesus is the true firstborn. He belongs to God in the most profound way. And he's the one who will live his whole whole life in perfect service and obedience to God. So God here is already working out the details of his salvation plan. And he's working out his salvation plan through Mary's own faithfulness. You see four times in this passage alone, in verses 22, 23, 24, and later on in verse 27, we are reminded that she is at the temple in obedience to the law. 
God is using her obedience for his glory. And what about us? You know, much as the memory of the Exodus is central to the Old Testament people of God, so the memory of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ should be central to Christians. We believe the gospel is true. And we call ourselves gospel people. And yet we so often fall into one of two traps. We forget or we suppress. Now suppose that you've forgotten where you place your keys. Now naturally you go hunting for them in all the places that you think that they will be. But it will be really strange, wouldn't it, if you forgot that you forgot where you put your keys. And yet this is what we can be like with God. You see, we misplace God. Then we forget where we put him. And then we forget that we've forgotten about God. We disobey him. And then we lock him out. And the second trap is that we don't remember rightly. Now, in one psychology experiment, uh, the participants were asked to do one of two things. Either they imagine an action, like breaking a toothpick, or they actually broke the toothpick. Now, the more times that the participants imagined performing the action, the more likely they were to claim that they had actually performed it. And we can be like this with the gospel, can't we? You see, we intentionally or unintentionally make Jesus fit our imaginations instead of the other way around. You know, Jesus will forgive me anyway, we say, so how I live doesn't matter. Or, Jesus can't possibly forgive me anyway, we say, so because I don't matter. And that's why we need to keep on remembering the gospel. We need to keep reminding each other of the gospel. You see, when we meet together on a Sunday, we want to sing songs that tell of the whole gospel story. We want to hear from the pulpit that God in Christ is reconciling the world to himself. For Jesus has lived a perfect life, died on the cross, taken the punishment for our sin, rose again to rule the, the world and establish his kingdom. God has done it. He has provided for our sin. And when we go out from here into the world of Monday to Saturday, we want to remind each other of the gospel. Because of Jesus, we are more loved and welcome than we ever dared believe. And there is no need to ask or seek love and welcome from anywhere else. Because God has proven himself faithful to Jesus, in Jesus. Therefore, we can live faithfully as God's children. We are free to admit our own wickedness and failure. We are free to encourage and rebuke one another. We are free to serve others and not ourselves. 
gospel people remember and they remember rightly so let's move now to the right side of the split screen and that's the Simeon and here we anticipate God's faithfulness we anticipate God's faithfulness verse 25 now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon and this man was righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him now we're not told anything about Simeon here except what matters to God and that is he is righteous and devout and how do we know that? well the Bible tells us he is waiting for the consolation of Israel and the consolation of Israel here immediately recalls a famous passage in Isaiah and that's the Old Testament reading for today Isaiah 40 in Isaiah 40 verse 1 to 2 we read comfort comfort or if you like console console my people says your God speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins the prophet is announcing that God is giving his people a chance to start over see they have experienced the consequences of their grave sin by being exiled but God in his grace would give them another chance and in fact the language of the exodus is used throughout Isaiah 40 to 55 so that sometimes what is spoken of here is called the new exodus so in Isaiah 40 verse 3 to 5 God says he will prepare a way in the wilderness to take his people home just like he took his people home to the promised land from Egypt and through this he will reveal his glory to all and this is the consolation that Simeon has been waiting for he knows that God has been faithful in the past so he waits confidently that God will prove himself to be faithful once again God will rescue as he has done before but can God really be trusted? you know it's true that Israel has written from their colonization under Babylon and Persia but now they are under the Romans I mean how can you call this a new exodus? but perhaps Simeon remembers the words of Isaiah 40 verse 8 the grass withers, the flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever he could count on God's word and God's word to him through the Holy Spirit was that he would see the Lord's Christ verse 26 and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ and here the consolation of Israel is linked with Jesus himself see Jesus is the one who will bring in the new exodus he will lead his people home and he will bring them to a better Eden see Jesus is the one who will do what God says in Isaiah 51 verse 3 for the Lord comforts Zion 
he comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Christians are gospel people. That means Christians are hopeful people. Simeon looked for the consolation of Israel and to see Jesus. We look for the consolation of the new creation and to see Jesus. Now Leslie Newbegin was a missionary to India for many years and he says that there is a great divide in world religions. Now on the one side, there are religions that are like wheels. So there's a cycle of birth, growth, decay and death and it keeps on repeating. And history simply becomes meaningless movement. But on the other side, there are religions that are like roads. There is a destination. There is a goal. There is an end. You see, the best is yet to come. Christians are roadies, not wheelies. See, Isaiah gives us some glimpses into the beauty of the new creation. Now, he tells us, that the gates of the new Jerusalem will be open continually because there will be no more threat of war and crime. Now imagine Kuala Lumpur ever becoming a place like that. He tells us that our work, our environment, is no longer cursed. You know, vineyards will bear fruits and we will enjoy the works of our hands. Now imagine some of the most enjoyable times you had over the last few weeks and multiply that. And he tells us that there will be no longer any sound of weeping or distress. Now imagine some of your lowest times over the last two weeks and erase that. That's our destination. But the question for us today as well is, can God really be trusted? You know, we cannot deny that we sometimes despair. We get lonely, we feel ashamed, and we find it extremely difficult to believe in the comfort of God. And the solution is not to deny that this is our experience. Rather, God asks us to turn to Him and to turn to His Word again and to anticipate His faithfulness. See, Simeon did just that. And God did not let him down. And God has shown that in Jesus, he will never let us down. Now this does not mean that things will necessarily get better in this life. You know, your places of work, your relationships with others, they'll probably still prove difficult. But it means that God is for us. And he will be with us. Now, one of my favorite definitions of hope is that it is the memory of the future. And because of Jesus, we have a memory of our future in heaven. You know, sometimes Christians are accused of thinking too much of heaven and not making enough of life now. But this is to miss the point. You see, the way that you believe the story will end will affect how you live the rest of it. 
And that's why people work so hard to achieve their dreams before it's too late. And if you believe that Jesus, and not death, is waiting at the end, it will give you hope. You see, you will work hard and you will care for others because it does better. Now, your body might be broken, your spirits might be broken, but you will not give in to despair. You anticipate God's faithfulness. You have hope. And so that's our split screen. But as we read on in today's passage, now both sides of the screen now come together in verses 27 to 35. So Mary and Joseph on the one side, and Simeon on the other, finally me. So what we have here is a witness of God's faithfulness. We witness God's faithfulness in salvation and division. Verse 27. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the customs of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. See, Simeon recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah. And he, like Mary, like Zechariah, explodes in praise because God has kept his word. He has seen God's salvation. Verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Uh, One commentator puts it nicely. He says that Simeon is like the watcher who can leave an assigned post now because the anticipated event has come. Now Simeon has been looking for the consolation of Israel, but he knows from the reading of his Old Testament scriptures that this consolation is not just for Israel. He would know from passages like Isaiah 42 verse 6, for example, that the promised Christ is to be a light for all the nations. Jesus is, verse 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. This salvation is for every racial group. No exceptions. And he is glory for Israel because he is the full realization of their hope. You see, in seeing Jesus, they see God's glory in its truest, fullest sense. But the God of Israel is also the God of all nations. The God of Israel is the only God who can save. And so, the God who saves Israel is also the God who can and does save the nations. See, Jesus has come for the world. And this is God's plan from the very beginning. Verse 31. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. But Jesus is not just salvation personified. And he comes also to bring division. And that's verses 33 to 35. 
And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now up to this point we've had a a very, very positive picture of Christ. But Simeon knows his Bible too well. See, he knows. He's drawing on uh, language and ideas from Isaiah. And here, probably from Isaiah 8, verse 14 to 15, where we read, He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and be taken. See, Jesus has come for the world. But he has also come to divide people. Those who reject him will fall. And those who trust in him will rise. God is not just faithful to his people. He is faithful to his own character. He will judge. In 2 Timothy 2 verse 12 to 13, it tells us, If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And before there is consolation, there will be pain. Jesus' ministry will bring sorrow to Mary, especially as he heads for the cross. Now Christians are gospel people. We look back to the cross and we look forward to the new creation. And here we are to look in, up and outward. We look in to examine ourselves. See, are we trusting in Christ? Now, for some of you today, is it possible that you suddenly realize that you have never really trusted Him? For others of you, is it possible that you have simply just wandered away from Him? Do you think that you don't need Him? Either way, the answer is the same. Don't be foolish. Don't be on the side of those who fall. Lift your eyes to Christ. See, come to Jesus again and ask for his forgiveness and then to find comfort in him. And he will forgive. That's what he has promised. He is salvation. His decision to go to the cross at great cost tells us of God's character. The cross tells us of God's love and justice. He is revelation. And his resurrection tells us that all things must be subject to his rule. He is glory. 
Look in, but don't stay there. Look up to Christ. And when we look up to Christ, we must ultimately look outward. You see, if Jesus is Savior and Lord, then the world must know. Now, I've always admired some of the early missionaries who came to Malaysia during and um, after World War II. Now, many of them had initially planned to go to China, and so naturally they studied Mandarin. But the government there closed their doors to them. So many of them ended up in Southeast Asia and Malaysia instead. And what they discovered was that Mandarin was not enough. You see, they had to master Cantonese or Hokkien or Teochew, depending on where they were. And that man, starting all over again. You know, even worse, sometimes they were caught to another village where they discovered they had to learn another dialect because the dialect that they learned wasn't spoken there. And so that man, the frustrations of studying slowly every day and having the courage to practice all those holding phrases. And it was very, very hard. There's no doubt about that. So what kept them going? Simply, the conviction that Jesus is Savior and Lord. And so they must tell the gospel to the nations. Brothers and sisters, I plead with you to feel the challenge of this. It's so easy to be indifferent. But if the good news is that Jesus is Savior and Lord, then the world must know. Christians breathe the same air as everyone else. Christians pay the same prices for sugar and petrol as everyone else. Christians feel the same pressures as everyone else. Christians cry over the same things as everyone else. Christians know the reality of this cursed world same as everyone else. But Christians know that they don't have to play pretend. They can go to God because they are gospel people. They can look back to the gospel events of the cross and resurrection. They can look forward to the hope of the new creation. They look in, acknowledging their sin, but also up to Jesus who cleanses them from their sin. And they look outward to the nations because the Jesus who is salvation is also Lord. I know that as I look ahead to 2011, I will sin, I will miss the mark, I will make mistakes at various times. I will get sad, I will get scared, I will get worried at various times. But let us together resolve to know this. You and I both. Our God is a faithful God. We can go to Him. Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that from age to age, from beginning to end, you have shown yourself to be a faithful God. You have not abandoned your creation, but you have committed yourself to it. And in the Old Testament, we see that so clearly in the Exodus. We see that so clearly in the prophets. But we see it most clearly in the Lord Jesus, where we witness your faithfulness at its climax. And Lord, as we come today, as we gather today, please help us to remember your faithfulness and to anticipate it. And as we go out from here for the next six days before we meet again next Sunday, we pray that we will keep reminding each other of the gospel. Please help us to live as your faithful children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.